0: Hey, this is Jeremy Isaacs, lead pastor of Generations Church, where we want to live like it matters. For more information about our church, you can visit us at g.church. We hope you're encouraged by today's message. Thanks again for listening. How are we doing? We good? good? We good? Yep. You look great. You sound great. You sounded really, really good this morning. Why don't you look to the person on your left or your right and say, you sounded good this morning. I could hear you. And then turn to the person that's your second choice and be like, I couldn't really hear you. You need to sing louder next week. I'm glad that you are here today. If I haven't had the chance to meet you, my name is Jeremy, and my wife Corey and I are, are pastors here at Generations Church. We're so thankful for you. And uh, you you may not know this, but we haven't been here for a couple weeks. Uh, I've still been in the office some, but we took a few weeks off. And uh, you know, our goal, our our desire, as God allows, is for us to pastor this church for twenty plus more years. Well, that's that's a thousand Sundays. That's a lot. If you'll raise your hand right now and be like, I'll be here the next thousand Sundays. We'll all be here together. But uh, we've just tried to be super intentional. We try to work really hard. We try to play really hard. But we also try to be very intentional with seasons of rest, just to pace ourselves and to stay healthy physically, mentally, emotionally. And so I'm thankful for our trustees and our staff, our elders, uh, the amazing G team of volunteers. And uh, I'm just thankful for all of them as they've led. The last two weeks, you've been blessed. I I was able to watch Uh, Pastor Carson and Pastor Aaron as they continued in our Summer 7 series did a fantastic job with two great messages. Uh, But it's been a great series and there's just a lot of great things going on. It was kind of a a unique season to step away for a few weeks because uh, there's just a lot of amazing things that are happening, have been happening, and uh, that we're already in the planning stages or about to see happen over the next few weeks. And Uh, One of those you heard about on the video just a second ago, but next Sunday is a really big Sunday. We're going to pray over all of our students. It's back to school prayer. Pray all of our students, teachers, bus drivers, lunch ladies, administrators, homeschool mamas, whoever you are, if you're connected to educating uh, or connected to any part of the educational process of our students, or you are a student of any age, we want to pray over you next week, just that God would bless you and give you his favor in the school year ahead But it's also a great week because it's salsa with the staff. So if you're relatively new to the church, you've got questions, you just want to connect and kind of help us to know your story. We'd love to tell you part of our story, but it's not a sales pitch, not an infomercial timeshare. You're not signing up for anything. We just would love to get a chance to get to know you. But we ask you to register. When we say salsa, it's not a dance party. It's actually chips and salsa and guac and queso because I love that. That's my love language. And so we're going to spend some time. We just want to make sure we got enough for you. I'm going to eat a lot. We'll make sure you have enough as well. So register for that. Come be a part of that after both services next week. And then we kick off a brand new series called Figuring Out Family. All of us are connected to a family. It looks different for some of us in this stage of life. Perhaps you're empty nesters, your grandparents, maybe you're single, maybe you're widowed, divorced. Maybe you are like the Leave It to Beaver family. Not anybody under you know, a 40 will get that reference, but uh, you know, it's mom, dad, and 2.4 kids living in the same house. That's great too. Or maybe you're more like the Brady Bunch. Uh, Whatever your context of family is, we all come from a family. And so thankfully, God's word speaks to family. And so we want to talk about that over the next four weeks. In fact, we have invited our community to come and be with us uh, this this weekend. Some of you may have already received it, but about 5,000 homes nearby got this mailer. And we've invited them to come for the next four weeks for this series of figuring out family. And there's something special that happens each week. So next week is back to school prayer. Then the following two weeks, we're going to launch our G groups for the fall semester. We've got groups for uh, young adults. We've got married couple groups. We've got a young adult group. I think I've said that already. We've got 55 plus. We've got uh, grief share. We've got an activity group with our church softball team. We've got all kinds of things that we do just to get together, breakfast groups and uh, prayer groups we're launching. So we want you to be a part of those groups. Those will launch in the middle two weeks. And then the last Sunday of this series, August 20th, everybody say August 20th. We have Sunday Fun Day. It's our annual fun day on a Sunday. So out front, we'll have a lot of things for uh, kids to enjoy, and there'll be some food available for all of us uh, to support our missions team that's going to Guatemala in a few weeks. So we want you to be a part of that, and we've invited our neighbors. But I want you to personally invite some folks to come and be with you. And here's what I'm gonna say before we pray over this series. You are in the 1030 service right now. Some of you didn't even realize that. You're in the 1030 service But over the last few weeks, we've had more of you in this service by a pretty hefty amount than we've had in the 9 o'clock service. So if you can move to 9 and just be a missionary to 9, not because they're unsaved and you're saved, but just missionary like opening up seats for those that might come at 10.30, we'd love for you to consider doing that. It would be a great help to us, even if it's just for a short season, perhaps during this series. But 9 and 10.30... We want you to, uh, to invite your friends to come. So here's what I want us to do. We don't always do this. We're gonna pray over the next four weeks, believing that God desires something special for every family in our church and our community. So would you just pray with me, and as you're praying, let's think about those that we might invite this week to come and be with us next Sunday. God, we love you so much, and we thank you for what you're doing right now in our church, and we thank you for all of the incredible stories and testimonies of what you have done. But God, we're believing for some new testimonies to come in the next four weeks And I pray for every family in our community that is hurting, that is searching, that they would be prompted in some way through a card that lands in their mailbox. It wouldn't become junk mail. It would be an invitation into an encounter with you through a a conversation with a coworker or a friend, God, that it would be an invitation to come and be a part of these next four weeks. And so, God, we pray for every marriage that's on the rocks. We pray for sons and daughters to literally come back to the house of faith. And God, we just believe that you want to do even more than we desire for you to do in these next four weeks. So, God, we put that before you now. And we ask you uh, to be incredibly faithful in these four weeks. In Jesus' name we pray. And everybody said, Amen. So be thinking about it. Invite somebody and be with us these next four weeks. It's going to be awesome. We're going to have a good time figuring out family. You'll hear a little bit more about that before we leave today. Uh, today, we are in our final installment of our Summer 7. So, if you've been with us this summer, we have been looking to Revelation 2 and 3 to some letters that the Apostle John uh, got as a part of a revelation from Jesus Christ while he was exiled on the Isle of Patmos. And in Revelation 2 and in Revelation 3, he writes these letters to seven literal churches. It was actually the mail route of Asia Minor, kind of modern day Turkey. He writes these letters from Christ in this revelation, this vision. To these churches. And so if you've got a Bible today, I'd love for you to go to Revelation two because we're going to drop back. We kinda called an Audible the last week of June. And we're going to go back to start today at the the church at Thyatira. It's in Revelation chapter two. It begins in verse 18. I'm going to I'm going to talk about two letters today. So we're going to hustle. Buckle your seatbelts. Hang with me. Take out your Bibles. Get your notes ready. And we'll jump in together today. Revelation 2, beginning in verse 18, says this. To the angel or the pastor of the church in Thyatira write, these are the words of the Son of God whose eyes are like blazing fire, whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your deeds, your love and faith, your service and perseverance, and that you are now doing more than you did at first. Nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophet And by her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. I've given her time to repent of her immorality, but she is unwilling. So I will cast her on a bed of suffering and I will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely unless they repent of her ways. I will strike her children and then all the churches will know that I am he who searches hearts and minds and I will repay each of you according to your deeds. Aren't you glad you showed up to church today, right? (laughs) This is tough. It's a tough read when you start to look at the words that are mentioned here and some of the things that are outlined in this letter. I mean, this is, this is a tough version of Jesus. And maybe that was your experience. At some point in your life, you experienced this version you thought of Christ, some teaching, some experience, some encounter with a religious person, a Christian, a faith-filled person, someone in your home, someone in your church, someone in the community. Someone on television and you experienced what you thought was this version of Jesus and you said, hey, how can this loving God kind of say things like this? And you walked away from the faith and walked away from the church and you left the church for a season of time, but, but you're here today. Maybe because you experienced the grace of God and the mercy of God and so you've come because you experienced a different side of his character and his nature, you're searching, you're exploring what faith actually looks like and what a personal relationship with him looks like in the context of what you read in scripture and what he desires for you personally on a daily basis. But this is a tough version of Christ. I remember growing up and, and man, I grew up in an incredible Christian context, great godly parents, a great church. Sometimes my dad listens to the podcast and he'll call me and go, I don't, I don't think your experience growing up is the same one I remember you having growing up. Like sometimes you talk about things I don't remember that happening But man, I had great parents and a great church experience. But for whatever reason, through my reading of scripture or things that I saw or things that I heard or just my own personality, I had for a season of my life this view of God like he was Zeus, like sitting up in heaven on the throne, like throwing lightning bolts, you know, at us every misstep, anything that I did wrong, I'd be like, oh, you know, and you would see this like vindictive, mean, harsh God. And, and for whatever reason, that's, that's how I viewed God. Not because all the people around me said it or, or did it that way or, or, or told me that's who he was, but that's just the perception of God that I have. And so maybe you had, don't have any more, but had. So maybe that's an experience that you had as well. But before we dig into what this passage of scripture might really mean, I'd love for us to have some context about the city, because we try to do that each week. So who is this letter to? The, the city, the church of Thyatira, this is the smallest church that is that receiving a letter, but it's the longest letter. There's something important that Christ is trying to say to this Church, But if you're trying to understand the city, we've talked about churches that were in cities like, you know, almost like the equivalent of New York or Chicago or Atlanta, these big metropolis cities. If you were to try to compare Thyatira to something we all would understand, it's kind of like Dalton, Georgia, right? It's like a trade town. It's like a blue collar experience. Everybody was a part of a trade guild, which was kind of the equivalent of a labor union and a frat house put together. It was like they worked all day together and then they went and partied all night together and then they showed back up and worked all day together. And so they had these experiences where they were doing life together, but they were in, in large part, many of the people that were a part of these trade guilds, they were doing things after work that were contrary to what we would cling to in the word of God, they were in, in kind of participating in all manner of sexual immorality. I mean, it's like Sodom and Gomorrah type stuff, nasty, evil, vile things that are taking place. So if you were a Christian, a follower of Christ in that city, and you liked your job and you liked the income that job provided for you to provide for your family and you enjoyed the community that you lived in, but you were invited over and over and over into these settings where you were encouraged and invited to do things that were against Who you were trying to be and who you worshiped and who you honored, what would you do? Because this wasn't like middle school where they just kind of made fun of you. Like you would lose your job, sometimes be threatened with your actual life. And so you had to make a decision to take a stand against these types of things. And so when we're reading this letter, we are actually reading a very specific thing that's kind of taking place in the culture of that church that I think relates really well to the culture that we live in Currently, let's jump back in again in verse 18 when it says this. These are the words of the Son of God whose eyes are like blazing fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your deeds, your love and faith, your service and perseverance, and that you are now doing more than you did at first. Now, this is the only place in the book of Revelation that Jesus is referenced as the Son of God. Almost every other time, he's referenced by another name, but most of those times in anything that looks like this, it's Son of Man. And so he was the son of man. He was 100% human. He was the son of God, 100% God, uniquely blended together. There's never been another of his kind. But in this, it's referencing his deity. It's referencing his connection to God. He said, I and the Father are one. And so this is the son of God descriptor that we see of him. It's the only place in the book of Revelation. So for him to say about himself that he is the son of God, this is a place that some people get hung up. They get to this point and they're like, man, I like Jesus. When I read about him, he seems like a cool guy. I mean, he teaches some good stuff. He did some cool things. He walked around and, you know, like had an impact. And, you know, I kind of see the good that comes from a lot of what he started and developed and left to the apostles. But I get hung up when he claimed to be God. You're not alone in that thought. That's, that's been throughout history that people would get hung up On that idea. But that's who he claimed to be. You can't say that he's a good teacher because part of his teaching was that this is who he was. And so, you know, it's kind of that Lord lunatic or liar idea. Like you can't take in part what he said. You have to take it in whole. And this is who he claimed to be. And then he goes on to commend them. He says, man, I see your love. I see your works. I see your deeds. I see your faith. I see your service. I see your perseverance. And it's awesome. And we've said every week that this is a literal letter being written to a literal church, and it's being read by the literal pastor. So if this letter was written to Generations Church and given to me for me to read to you, this commending part might say like, hey, I know you sent a ton of kids to camp in the month of June. You sent a ton of kids to camp, and you had volunteers that gave up kind of vacation time from their jobs to go and work those camps and pour into students, and Man, their lives were transformed and they connected to one another and they connected to God. Way to go. That was awesome. Some of you gave money so that they could have scholarships to go. I I see that a few weeks ago, you had vacation Bible school and you had a ton of kids here on the campus and leaders and volunteers that made crafts and did stations and snacks and taught lessons and man, way to go. It was incredible to see you invest in children and their. Families. I see you raised a lot of money through a golf tournament, and you're gonna invest in orphans in Guatemala and scholarships for ministry students in the Philippines, and way to go. That's awesome. And so when you hear that, I mean, for me, I'm I'm like, yeah, all right, Jesus noticed. That's incredible that he, He noticed the things we're doing, which makes it really tough to read the next part when it says this in verse 20. Nevertheless, Anytime I see nevertheless in scripture, I go, okay, all right, buckle up, here we go. Nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophet, and by her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. Nevertheless, you've done some good things, nevertheless, you've done some bad things. Anybody ever gone in for like a job evaluation and you get a compliment sandwich? (laughs) It's like, hey, you're awesome, but here's some things you got to change. But, man, I love you so much, right? Compliment sandwich. That's kind of what you're getting here a little bit. Like, hey, I'm commending you. You're doing great things, love and deeds and faith and service. It's awesome. Nevertheless, here's what you've done. Here's what you've allowed into the church. You're tolerating this woman, Jezebel. Now, there was a literal woman named Jezebel in the Old Testament. You can read about her story. She was a queen. One of the most famous stories comes in 2 Kings chapter 9, but she was an evil, nasty queen who had set up Baal worship, and she had prophets of Baal, and they were chasing after and really trying to annihilate any of the prophets of God. There's a really famous story that I encourage you to go read, but it was about sacrifice, including child sacrifice. Like, it was nasty, evil, disgusting things, and so the term or the name Jezebel would have been familiar to these people. It would have been like if I said to you in reference to someone, they're like Benedict Arnold, right? A a traitor. There, There was this name that represented something else. And so most theologians do not believe that even though this is an actual person that has infiltrated the church at Thyatira, that their name, her name was actually Jezebel. It was a person who was deceiving the church. She was coming in and connecting doctrine and theology that was against the word of God, some of it of a sexual nature to what they were being called to do in their community, but not what they were being called to in faith. And so he says, hey, you are tolerating Jezebel. You are allowing her to come in. She calls herself a prophet and she's misleading people into sexual immorality and eating food sacrificed to idols. We talked about this a few weeks ago, but food sacrificed to idols, that might not sound like a big deal to you, But what it is saying is this food that was sacrificed to idols in worship to these other gods is saying these other gods are our provider. These other gods are whom we worship. And so we eat now as a blessing from these other gods. We're we're lifting up something other than Jehovah God. And so she's misleading and deceiving the church. And he says, like, you're tolerating her. And again, as, as I think about these, these trade guilds and I think about these people, they would, they would worship and they would bow down to one of the gods. They would then go out and party and drink heavily and they would engage in every manner of, of evil that you can imagine. Nothing was off limits and it was connected to their livelihood. And so these Christ followers had a choice and then this Jezebel shows up and she begins proclaiming something like, hey, here's the deal. You can be a Christ follower and do whatever you want. There's no problem. Be a Christ follower and just get, you know, get, get nasty drunk in these parties and, and, and sleep around and do whatever you want to and offer sacrifices to anybody that you want to, and, and that's fine because God is love, and, and you can do whatever you want and believe whatever you want and still call yourself a Christian. That would be in the modern equivalent. If someone were to walk into this church and say, hey, you can be a Christian, get drunk, who cares, sleep around, it's fine, look at whatever you want, no problem, no problem. Be attracted to whoever you want. That's up to you because God is love and it's not our place to judge. And we should all just be tolerant of each other's choices. Does that sound familiar to anybody? I think when I look around in culture, I see things like that all the time. And I hope you hear my heart. Hopefully, you know my heart. But If you're relatively new here, I want you to hear my heart as I tell you what I believe this is saying to all of us. Culture is asking us to become more and more tolerant of things that are against the word of God. And I would love it, I, I listen, I would love it if I could just come up every Sunday and just tell you all the things you want to hear. Like, let's just read the really fun parts of the Bible. Let's leave all the hard parts for other people, and let's just hang out in the parts that all make us feel good about whatever we're already doing. But my responsibility and what I will be judged for is that we take this book in whole and not in part. That we don't just rip out the parts that we don't like and are difficult to understand and difficult to live out and, you know, in our current culture. And again, I said this a few weeks ago, and I want to make sure you hear this. This is not the first time in the history of mankind that the church is being pressed in on. like. Generations before us, they were losing their lives and being jailed and arrested, and they still are around the world, and that probably is coming to America, and maybe that's happening in small measure in places, but like, don't, let's don't get a little bit self-righteous and pious and think like we're the only ones that have ever had to fight for the gospel. That's just not true. And so what are we called to do? We're called to just know the truth, know God's word, all of it. Hide it in our hearts so we might not sin against him, and then stand firm in it. But as we stand firm in it, we also have to recognize what we're called to do as we interact with other people, because this is what Jesus said. He said, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel. You tolerate. And the question of culture today is are you a tolerant person? Is Christianity a tolerant faith? The number one celebrated virtue, it would seem, is tolerance that you have your truth and I have my truth and you live your truth and I live my truth. And more and more in the world that we live in, if you don't hold an open, tolerant view to everybody and everything where you agree with and support and affirm and embrace everyone and everything, then you're a bigot and you're discriminatory and you're prejudiced. You've committed the great cultural sin. You are intolerant, it would seem, primitive. I just don't think that's true. Because here's, here's the problem as I see it. Tolerance used to be that I could love you and respect you and interact with you and engage with you and let you know where I stand and what I believe and why I believe it and pray for you as I listen to you. And like we could have relationship with one another and you knew that I believe the choices that you might be making were against God's word and not the best for you, not God's best for you. But now tolerance means that if I have any relationship with you, I have to accept everything that you do. Like while we've stood still on God's word to the best of our ability in the best case, cultures continue to shift around us and redefined words that make it look like we're now on the attack. And I just don't think that's the truth. And so what we have to do is we have to know God's word. We have to know the truth of God's word. We have to stand firm in it and not budge an inch on what the truth is. The apostle Paul says this in the New Testament in the letter to, first, the, letter to the Corinthian church. This is 1 Corinthians 16, verse 13 and 14, when he says this, be on your guard, stand firm in the faith, be courageous, be courageous. Be strong. Do everything in love. Do everything in love. We, as Christ followers, should stand for what is right. We should hold to God's word. But we don't have to be mean while we're doing it. It was a good spot for an amen. You missed it. We're just going to keep moving, okay? You don't have to be mean while you're doing it. I don't have to be mean while I'm doing it. Like one of my favorite stories in the Gospels is where Jesus is being arrested in the garden. I love this story because Peter's involved, and Peter usually has the right heart, the right motives, but he usually says and does the wrong thing. That's me, right here. I think there's four of us in the room. I saw a couple hand raises. Somebody just got saved right there. So, But Peter is standing there as Jesus is being arrested, and Peter thinks, I know what I'm supposed to do. This is, this is my response. This is what I'm called to do in this moment. I got to defend Jesus. He picks up a sword. He does what I probably would have done. I'm not a big weapons guy. He goes to hurt somebody and accidentally cuts off their ear. I'm not sure how he missed that high. I don't know how... He missed that. He cuts off his ear. Jesus bends down, grabs the ear, puts it back on. I mean, imagine the response of the soldiers. Like, maybe we got the wrong guy. This guy's doing pretty cool things. Like, it was an ear. And so, Jesus says, hey, Peter, put the sword down. It's just this reminder to me that Jesus doesn't need you to defend him. Not in ways that cut and hurt other people. He wants you to stand for the truth. He wants you to stand firm on God's word. He wants you to live in a way that models for people what it looks like to live and love Jesus with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor, those that are a part of the house of faith and those that are not. Do everything in love, 1 Corinthians 16 says. And I wrote this, and maybe it's just for me and for nobody else. But striving for holiness shouldn't make me haughty or prideful. It should make me gracious and humble. Striving for holiness, trying to live a life that honors and pleases God and receive his grace and his mercy that we've already been talking about all day. It it should make me gracious to a loving God and humble before you. And if you're in the room today, and you're searching for God, and you don't know what you believe, and you're not really sure what it looks like to live this thing out, let me just tell you who you're in the room with today. You're in the room with a bunch of people who love God, and they love people. Our goal is to be the friendliest church in America. I don't know if we're going to hit it, but we're striving for it. We just want to love you. And welcome you as you search for truth and you search for this deeper growing relationship with God. And you can belong here while you try to figure out what you believe. It's filled with a room of people who are gracious and humble because they have done nothing themselves for salvation other than accept that free gift that comes from the completed work of the cross in Jesus Christ. That is our heart for this place. That's our heart. It shouldn't make you haughty and prideful. It should make us humble humble and gracious. We love you right where you are when you walk in the doors. We just love you too much to let you stay there. We just want to call you higher, call you to more. And if you're living in some type of sinful behavior, that's not God's best for you. He wants more for you than the choices that you are making right now. And we want to love you into that growing relationship with him. We're going to stand firm on the truth of God's word, but we're going to do everything in love. And in this letter, Jesus says to his church, don't give in to the teaching of someone that just makes you feel good about what you're already doing that's wrong. There is a standard, and we are called to be set apart. But what do you do when somebody just stays in their sin? He says, I've given her time to repent. Let me just pause right there and say, this is another great picture of the father. I've given her time to repent. 2 Peter tells us that he was patient in the days of Noah so that none would perish. He says he didn't come to condemn the world, but to save the world. He is patient. He says, I've given her time to repent of her immorality, but she is unwilling. It's not his action, it's her action. She is unwilling. And so I will cast her onto a bed of suffering. One of the questions that I often get and I do get this from time to time, but I've gotten it a lot over the years, is how can a loving God send people to hell? That's a tough question. It's a valid question. How can a loving God send people to hell? I think that's the wrong question, not because I'm trying to get out of answering it. I just think it's the wrong question because all of us have been given free will and choice whether or not we choose to receive Christ and his salvation and his grace and his love that we've been talking about. And so we have that choice I think the question would be, if, if we or anyone has chosen not to be in relationship with him, how could a just God force people into heaven that don't want to go there? God is just giving, he's patient. He's giving time for repentance. He wants the gospel to reach everyone. But if we choose not to receive it, why would he force us to spend eternity with him when we didn't want to spend earth with him? That's the challenge for all of us to recognize that we're blaming God for something that is our choice. We have a choice whether or not to receive the grace of God. And so in this case, he says, so she was unwilling, and so I'm giving her her way. Which brings us to the end of letter one, all right? I promise the second one goes a little faster. Flip over to Revelation chapter three, the final letter, the seventh letter, The church at Laodicea. Everybody say Laodicea. Some of you said it wrong. Say it one more time. The church at Laodicea. Laodicea. Revelation 3, beginning in verse 14, it says this. To the angel of the church in Laodicea write, these are the words of the amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you're lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my this is one of the most famous parts of these letters. Many people know this reference, even if they don 't know where it 's found or what it's in reference to. Neither hot nor cold you 're lukewarm. But this is to a specific church in a specific place. Let me try to set the, 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 the picture for you here. Laodicea was a specific town. It had great wealth, a lot of money was there in the city of Laodicea. They were also known for their school of medicine. There were people that were studying to help people who were sick to become well, including like Medicine for eyes. There was a lot of things happening where they, would, they were creating like salve and balm that they could put on eyes for people that were getting infections and going blind. And so this was what was happening at the School of Medicine in Laodicea. It was also a place where they were, there was industry there, and so they were creating wool and clothing. And if you were really rich, your clothing was black wool and not white wool. It kind of set you apart, it created a little bit of a class system. But Jesus didn't really reference many of those things in the letter to the church at Laodicea. He kind of hit them right in the soft spot because they were self-made men and women. When their town was destroyed, they chose to rebuff the money that could have come from the Roman Empire. They said, hey, we'll take care of it ourselves. We have enough money to rebuild our city. We don't need your help. We're self-sustaining. We live in nice houses. We have nice things, nice possessions. We've got friends. We don't need anybody else. But they had one problem that they couldn't solve almost no matter how much they tried. They didn't have a natural clean water source close to them. They had the river Lycus that kind of flowed right around the city, but it was poisoned. And so the water that would come out of the Lycus River would make them sick. If they drank it, it would make them sick, and they didn't have anything that they could do to fix it. And so what they had to do is they had to spend money, and they received a little help from the Roman Empire at this point, but they had to spend money to get water shipped to them. Now, not like in Amazon boxes, they built pipes. And so just up the road, there was a town, Colossae. This was the place that the letter of Colossians was written to that church in the New Testament. And in Colossae, you kind of come down the mountain. It was like this natural spring water off the mountains. I'm not sure why that makes it so much better. But if it says spring water on it, I'm buying that bottle in the the store. My favorite comedian, one of my favorite comedians, he talks about Fiji water. Everybody buy the water in the square bottles? But... He says their tagline is, never touched by human hands. He said, which is hilarious. What do they think's happened at the Aquafina plant? They're just splashing around in kiddie pools before they bottle it up, you know? But this is what's happening. They're, they're bringing in cold water from Colossae that's coming down the mountain, and they're using that for the needs that they have for cold water. But hot water is something different. About five miles away to the east, there is a town, Hierapolis, that has these hot mineral springs that have a reputation that if you got into those hot water springs that you could be kind of healed from whatever was ailing you. And so they built pipes. I've actually got a picture of it. This is, this is their pipes. They built these pipes to bring hot water from Hierapolis all the way to Laodicea. You can see the calcium deposits that are there in that water. They actually had these places that they could cut into that they created gaps so they could clean out that calcium buildup every few months so that it wouldn't become uh, undrinkable water for them. And so, so they had these pipes that would bring hot water. Here's the challenge. It started hot five miles away, but by the time it got to them, it was lukewarm. Can we just all pause for a second and just admit that lukewarm water and drinks are terrible? Right, You're hot on a summer day, and you're looking for something cool and refreshing, and you go to grab what you think is a cold glass of water, and you drink it, and it's been sitting in the sun, and it's ugh, right? It's terrible. You start the morning at your desk. You've made a hot piping cup of coffee to get you through the morning, and then 17 people need one minute apiece, and you respond to three emails, and by the time you grab that hot coffee, it's lukewarm at best, It's terrible and you gotta microwave it six times during the day just to finish one cup of coffee and all my stay-at-home moms said amen, but that's okay. Like lukewarm drinks are just horrible. They're just terrible. And and Jesus just kind of leans into that. And he says, as disgusting as that feels to drink it, that's the condition of your heart. It's the condition of your life. And if we're being honest with ourselves today, some of us, that's the reality of our lives as well. We don't live in Laodicea. We live in Canton or Woodstock or Ball Ground, or Hickory Flat or Holly Springs or somewhere else. But the condition of our heart is that we are lukewarm. The reference here, and some of you may get this, some of you may not, but the, the reference here is, and maybe you heard this, I, I, again, I remember hearing this, I probably remember saying this about myself or other people, is that like, and I'm moving for the camera guys here, I'm moving. But like when you start in your relationship with God or you have a very deep spiritual experience that you are on fire for God. Anybody ever heard that or said that, right? You're on fire for the Lord. Like you're close to him. Like the heat of the the good news of the gospels like all over your life and you're on fire for him. But over the course of five miles or five months or five years, one step at a time, one day, one week, one month of not reading your Bible, not really praying except when you need something from God before you walk into a doctor's appointment or you're about to take a test in science class, and it's just one step of skipping church and stopping going to your groups because, you know, you like some of the people, you don't like all the people, and you're in a new place. You're not on fire for the Lord anymore. Now, I'm not claiming that you need to be in a perpetual state of on fire. But if the reality of our lives is that we used to be here, and now we find ourselves somewhere here, you're not as close to God as you used to be, you're not practicing the spiritual disciplines as often as you used to, who moved? Not him. I moved, I drifted intentionally or unintentionally so away from a loving heavenly father who desires good things for my life. And I've become this self-made man or woman in the middle that thinks it's okay, like Jezebel, to claim a relationship that my life looks nothing like. I ran across this study, somebody sent it to me about a week and a half ago, and I wanna show you a graph. This graph only talks about one aspect of like the faith experience. So it's, not, it's just one thing, so don't get hung up on that part, but it's done some studies in 2008, 2012, 2016, 20, and now 22, and that's the latest numbers that we have, of people that self-identify as evangelicals. Now maybe you've heard that phrase, maybe you're very familiar I don't have time to unpack all of it. So let's just agree that when we're talking about evangelicals, we are talking about people who claim that Jesus is the son of God and that we are saved through faith in Jesus Christ alone. Not works, nothing that you can do. We've already talked about that. But like we believe Jesus is the son of God and we're saved through faith in him alone. We're going to identify evangelicals that way. These people did not take a test and they were identified as evangelicals. They just said, I am one. Okay? Now, look at these numbers. 9% of those people never attend church, not one time, ever. 18% seldom attend church, and 13% attend church only yearly. So if you add those numbers together, that totals 40%. Now, I'm literally preaching to the choir because you're in the room, okay? But we're not getting hung up on this just being church attendance. We are saying that if you boil it down to what we just described a few moments ago, this illustrates a larger point that as more and more people are practicing faith less and less, do we think that makes us hotter or colder? Or are we comfortable living in some type of lukewarm in-between? If I had a graph here that showed the amount of percent of people who claim to be Christ followers or evangelicals in their belief or who they claim to be, do we think that we're reading our Bibles less or more than 10 years ago or 30 years ago? Take your pick of any spiritual practice and let's do a self evaluation of worship, scripture reading, community and groups of fellow believers, church attendance, financial giving, fasting, prayer, serving, and on and on and on it goes. What are the things that have moved us away towards a comfort in the middle? Is it the cultural pressure to be more and more tolerant? Is it some Jezebel who has pulled us away from the things that we loved at first? Or is it just apathy? I hope you hear my heart. If this is your first time to be here, or you've been here every Sunday, I've been here. I love you. I don't say that as a compliment sandwich because I'm about to... go. All right, hang with me. I love you. And I'm not, I'm not saying that because I'm about to hurt you. I just love you. And so I want you to hear my heart that this is a challenge to all of us, me included, all of us to say, what is the condition of my heart? Is there a gap between who we say we are, what we say we believe and our actual closeness with Christ? Because one of the most challenging passages of scripture finds itself in the very first sermon that Jesus ever preached. Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter seven, verses 21 through 23, it says this. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my father who is in heaven. And many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. It's a challenging passage of scripture that seems to indicate that there can be a gap between what we say, what we do, and who we actually are. The condition of our heart. Do we open ourselves up to be known by Him? Do we pursue knowing Him more? We've spent seven weeks, six weeks, I guess, if you combine these two. We've spent seven kind of sermons in these letters to these churches to find the heart of God through his son, Jesus Christ and the apostle John. And if you don't take anything away from these seven weeks, here's what I want you to know. Jesus loves you. He loves you. And he's patient and he's kind and he wants that none would perish, but all would have eternal life through Christ Jesus. He loves you but he doesn't want you to get caught up in compromise. He commends you for your good deeds and your good work. He's excited about the things where you're succeeding, but he wants to call you higher and call you to more and not let any Jezebels in your life pull you to a place of compromise and that we never get comfortable in the middle and complacent there, but that we turn our arrow towards Jesus, who is the author and the finisher of our faith. How did he start this letter to the church at Laodicea? He said, these are the words of the amen. The one that we're pursuing, the one that is the author and finisher. We turn our arrow towards Jesus and we pursue him. And where we drop the ball and we will, we just say, God, I I messed up. I don't reflect your character and your nature in that decision and the words that I just said and the way that I talked to my spouse or the decision I made on my job. So continue to cleanse me and purge me of all unrighteousness as I pursue you. I don't wanna stay here. I wanna constantly be drawn closer and closer to who you are. Jesus loves you. And he loves you so much that he gave us a letter so we could read about him, understand him, know his truth, and that we could stand firm on it and do everything in love. I'm gonna ask you to bow your head, close your eyes just for a moment. If you're here today and you say, Jeremy, for me, I am not in a relationship with Jesus Christ. I hear you talking about the family of faith, the family of God. I hear you talking about all these different things. I'm not in a relationship with Jesus Christ. I need him to forgive my sins and to be my Lord, to lead and guide my life. I wanna pray for you. If that's you, would you just lift your hand right where you're at? Nobody's looking around. You can put it right back down. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. just a second we pray, I'm gonna give you some some things that you can pray. But if you would say to me, Jeremy, for me, it's not necessarily salvation, but I don't wanna get comfortable with any part of compromise. I wanna stand firm on the truth of God's word and I wanna love people well. If that's you, my hand's lifted. Anybody else today, we wanna pray for you as well. God, we thank you for our time. Thank you, God, for worship and prayer and your word. I thank you for these people thank you for from the youngest to the oldest those that have come to this place today those that are watching online we just thank you for your presence god today i pray for every person that's acknowledged their need for you to be the lord and savior of their life and if that's you and you lifted your hand i encourage you right now just say god i confess that i'm a sinner in need of a savior and i ask you to forgive my sins and be my lord that's all you have to say just give him control of your heart and your life and we believe in an instant he does that I wanna partner with you and help you take next steps. But God, we just pray right now for those people. They would have the strength to trust you. And God, now I pray for every person that lifted their hand to say, I don't, wanna, I don't wanna compromise an inch. I don't wanna be led astray. I wanna know your word and I wanna stand on your word and I wanna model love well to those that are around me. God, let this be a place where people can come and find you as they search for you. It's what your word tells us, that you will be found when we search for you with all of our heart, So God, let this be a place of searching. God, we thank you for all that you have done and all that you will do. We pray for next Sunday, what you'll accomplish in the next four weeks. In Jesus' name we pray. And everybody said, amen.